Welcome back, everyone, to the 13 Realms. In this episode, we have an artist that tries to create an entire story in a single image. World-renowned painter Patrick Williams, also known on the TED stage and creative enthusiast. He tells his origin story and more. But first, we go back into the kingdom of dwarves with another chapter in this incredible tale. Chapter 4. A pal with a pipe. When it came to headaches, Grog was an experienced connoisseur. In fact, he'd woken up with some kind of headache almost every morning since quitting the army and hitting the bottle. He'd had dull headaches and throbbing headaches, headaches that sat behind his eyes, and ones which dug into the back of his cranium, ones that went away when he drank. And ones that didn't. Grog had long believed that he'd experienced every sort of headache a dwarf could feel. This belief evaporated when he regained consciousness in a dim, unfamiliar room, and felt like the sharp side of an invisible axe was being pressed into the side of his skull by an invisible mountain giant. Oh, God. He groaned as morning sunlight snuck in through the slits of his barely opened eyes and stabbed him in the brain. Oh, shit. He moaned as the ruthless, non-existent giant shoved the invisible axe through the bandages that enveloped Grog's noggin. Take it slow, Grog. A vaguely familiar voice said from somewhere nearby. No sudden movements. Grog wanted to tell whoever this stupid dwarf was that he couldn't have made a sudden movement for all the ale in the Thirteen Realms. But all he managed was a pitiful moan. You're one lucky dwarf, Ironheart the deep voice said. If I'd arrived one moment later, you'd have been a goner. Being a goner sounded far preferable to the torture Grog was currently enduring. Apart from his headache, which was almost all-consuming, his left shoulder hurt, and a searing hot pain sliced across his right buttock. Why? Why did his bum hurt so much? Grog tried to remember. Invaders! He cried as images of undead dwarfs and memories of battle flooded his mind. He sat up abruptly. He had time to notice that he was seated on a low cot in a small room and that there were no evil dwarfs in sight. Then he leaned over the edge of the bed and vomited into the straw-covered floor. What did I say about sudden movements? Chided the smart-arsed voice. Pesh off, Grug said, spitting on the floor, wiping his beard with the back of a ragged sleeve, and gingerly lowering himself back down onto the bed. His headache was now even worse. 
Well, if you're going to be rude, I won't let you have any of this. Despite the extra pain he knew it would cause him, Grog opened his eyes a fraction and tried to locate the source of the voice. A small spot of red blossomed in a shadowy corner. Grog focused on it, and the spot resolved into the hot, glowing chamber of a long walnut pipe. The owner of the pipe exhaled a languid cloud of smoke, and through that cloud, Grog made out a pair of onyx eyes set in a white-painted face. Broughton, welcome back, old friend. I was worried about you. Is that Nissen weed? Grug asked hopefully. It is. Broughton stood up, walked across the room, and held out the smoldering pipe. I expect you'd appreciate a bit. You're a fucking paragon, Grug said, taking the pipe and turning its mouthpiece toward his lips. Go easy on it, Broughton said. That's from the town healer's physic garden. Medicinal grade, very strong. Go easy, my arse, Grug thought as he sucked mightily on the lip of the pipe. He filled his lips with smoke, held it there a moment, then exhaled with a long, blissful sigh. Oh, that's the stuff, he said as his hands and face began to tingle, and a warm, pleasant, melting feeling crept through his arms and legs. It, it certainly does the job, Broughton agreed, his voice strangely woeful. Grog looked up, with the Nissen weed already numbing his headache. He was able to open his eyes more than a crack and saw for the first time that beneath his moss-green cape, Broughton's left arm was supported in a sling and heavily bandaged. Hogs balls, Broughton. What happened to you? Same thing that happened to you, except I wasn't lucky enough to take the blow to my head and spend the rest of the fight snoozing peacefully. A small wave of embarrassment washed over Grug. He lowered his eyes and suddenly became very interested in the walnut pipe. He took another pull while Broughton continued speaking. I took the heavy end of a particularly nasty mace right here. The old lorekeeper patted the bandages over his tricep, shattered the bone, pulverized the muscle. Grug kept his eyes downcast as smoke billowed out of his nostrils. I'm sorry I wasn't more helpful. I... He shook his head. I'm not the dwarf I once was. You've certainly changed since I saw you last, Broughton said. Oh, it's a nice way of saying I've turned into a fat bastard. Grog took another puff on the pipe and offered it back to Broughton. Aye, you've gotten fat. Broughton took the pipe and smoked in silence for a moment. But... That's not the change I mean. Well, I've got a few more greys in my beard, and... You know I'm not talking about your beard, Maugrog. Well, who gives a rat's rectum about me anyway? Grog said, rolling his virtually pain-free head around on his now strangely 
elastic-feeling neck. Tell me what happened last night. Tell me every single detail. What are those things, Broughton? Where did they come from? You know they're the same things that attacked us in the fog. We thought as much. They certainly fit the description given by all the survivors from the Battle of Algon's Pass. It was no battle. As for what they are, Bruton continued, ignoring Grog's interjection. And where they come from, that is something we're hoping to ascertain in the very near future. We have prisoners, although it's proving rather difficult to loosen their tongues. And where did you come from? Grog asked as more and more questions bubbled up in his mind. What the shit were you doing in Longdale last night? And how did we win? We were outnumbered twenty to one. I was here for the telling, Broughton said, his voice laced with disapproval. You know, dwarves travel from all over the Thirteen Realms to celebrate our story. But you... Not only did you not bother to haul your ass up to the Hall of Legends for this sacred ritual, but you didn't even know it was taking place. Right, sorry, I forgot about the telling. But I'm here now, so maybe you could tell me a little story about what happened last night? Can you walk? Maybe. Grug stretched his hairy legs and felt no twangs of pain. But I'm pretty comfortable. Why don't you pull up that stool and tell me what happened? Because it reeks of chunder in here, you great pillock. Is there something wrong with that big red nose of yours? I thought the nascent smoke was sort of covering it up, Grog said sheepishly. No, Grog, it isn't. Broughton walked to the door and pulled it open. Come on, let's get some air. Grog wasn't sure whether it was because of the town healer's ultra-strong Nissan weed or his head injury, but standing up proved to be a formidable challenge. As he sat on the edge of the bed, he was dismayed to see that both his feet had grown up to an enormous size and were rhythmically pulsing like a frog's throat sack. Despite their great size, he was unable to place them on the floor, since its straw-covered surface kept impertinently moving further and further away from him. What in the Thirteen Realms are you doing? Broughton asked. Grog looked up to see his friend's white face creased with frustration. It's the floor, Grog protested. It keeps on moving, and my feet are... He trailed off. Ooh, I think I might have had too much of that pipe. Broughton looked down at the pipe in his hand. Ancient ones, save me. He walked over to Grog and grabbed him by the upper arm. Come on, you ridiculous dwarf. Grog allowed himself to be hauled to his feet and guided across the room. They emerged into a long, enclosed walkway, which was also covered in straw. And as Grog looked around, he realized where he was. You put me in the stables? Like a common boar? 
Should we have left you half-naked and bleeding in the middle of the town square? Yes, Grog said, haughtily pulling his arm free from Broughton's guiding grip. I am a very dignified dwarf, don't you know? He walked toward the sunlight, trying to ignore the fact that the straw all around him had made the odd and rather off-putting decision to turn itself into a million little wriggling yellow worms. Grogs hoped that he'd feel better once he was outdoors and away from the immaturely behaving straw, was dashed as he stepped out into the town square and was faced with a scene of utter carnage. Collapsed buildings still smoldered on the opposite side of the square. Grim-faced, soot-covered dwarves were picking through the rubble and passing buckets along a line from a large water wagon. Other wagons dotted the square. These ones were being loaded with a far grislier cargo. Clouds of fat mountain flies were already buzzing above them, and above the few remaining dwarf-sized shapes that lay, covered by sacks and sheets on the cobbled ground. Thin columns of smoke still rose from a number of places in the distance. The air felt heavy with death and despair. It wasn't just Longdale. Broughton had come to stand beside Grog and was looking around the square. Riders arrived this morning from the south and from Hembrook in the east. No word at all from the west. I need a drink, Grog said. Let's go find some ale and you can tell me how in the netherworlds you managed to win this little dust-up. Lawkeeper! The shout came from Grog's right, and he looked over to see a young dwarf wearing a clean grey jerkin striding towards them. We've been looking everywhere for you, sir. Burgomaster Ardrig requests the honour of your presence immediately. Broughton glared at the young dwarf and took a long pull on his walnut pipe and exhaled slowly. Does he now? Grog enjoyed watching every ounce of pomp and self-importance drain from the young messenger's face. Like spilled beer, firmly squeezed out of a tavern mop. Well, uh, yes, I'm sorry, but he does. The dwarf looked back and forth between Broughton and Grog. You see, we've received word that the king is on his way here, and... The king... Broughton asked, taking a step towards the now-trembling dwarf. Yes, sir. Well, why didn't you say so? Let's go. The messenger took off across the square. Broughton followed, then turned around when he realized that Grog hadn't moved. Come on, Maugrog, what are you doing? I'm not going to say the bloody Burgermeister, Grog said. Look at the state of me. He indicated his ripped and filthy night pants, the shapeless brown tunic someone had kindly put on him while he was unconscious, and the bandages wrapped around his skull. I'm off home to bed. Via the goblin's head, I reckon. Oh, no you're not, Broughton said, and his obsidian dark eyes flashed with anger. You're coming with me. The kingdom needs you, Grog. Oh, it needs a fat, concussed old fool who's off his head on knees and weed. Grog blurted. That's who it needs, does it? No. 
Broton closed the distance between them and reached out with his unbroken arm. He grasped Grog's shoulder with a strong hand and gave him a little shake. No, we need Malgrog Ironheart, chosen champion of High King Owen the Wise and general of his armies. Grog looked down at the cobblestones and tried to keep the trembling out of his voice. Owen's gone. The least wise thing he ever did was make me a general. Grog, no one blames you for... I said no, Broton. Grog shook his shoulder free from the law keeper's grasp. If there's fighting, I'll be there. But I don't want to talk to a burgomaster or a king. I don't want to be part of any decisions. I don't want to lead. He began storming across the square, towards the road that would lead him to his home. I just want to be left in peace! He called over his shoulder. I know what you want, Malgrog! Broughton shouted after him. And you won't find it in the bottom of a bottle! You're on a bait. Grog muttered under his breath as he passed a cart full of dead bodies. Redemption! Broughton's shout echoed around the smoky square, causing many dwarves to stop what they were doing and look up. Come and find me when you're ready to seek it. You can take your redemption, you white-faced bastard, Grog thought as he entered the welcoming shadows of a side alley. And ye can shove it up your arse. We are back in the 13 realms, and we've had so many incredible creatives that come on here to talk about world creation, character creation, but we haven't yet had someone that distills an entire world or vision into a single piece of art. And we have that in Patrick Williams. He is an incredible painter and he does so much and has a manuscript that's on its way. Welcome to the realms, Patrick. I'm happy to be here, Chris. We got to start about when did painting start for you? Like what was that something that came up for you as a kid or was that something that came to you later in life? Uh, definitely as a kid. I, I started drawing, uh, teaching myself to draw when I was about 10. And then I taught myself to paint when I was about 14, 15 years old. And what was it that sort of grabbed you about painting? I just put this together a few years ago that I had an experience when I was about 10 that I finally put together that that's what launched me into making art. It, I, I experienced a huge area of woods that was right behind uh, my house when I was growing up. An interstate was put in and they bulldozed all the trees. And at that same time, literally the spark of, of creativity was ignited uh, in me and I had just jumped into it. And you know, I drew for uh, quite a few years, teaching myself how to draw, and and it just seemed like a natural step to start painting. And my mom bought me a few acrylic paints and some small canvas board, and you know they were maybe twelve inches by eight inches, eight somewhere in there. And I just started experimenting and and trying to figure out how to paint. 
And shortly after that, I, I stretched some canvases and with the help of uh, my art teacher, I, I took one art class in, in high school. I was making paintings in my bedroom uh, for all of high school. When someone sees your art, you know, whether you're looking at some of the more abstract pieces or even the, the single flowers that you have, mm -hmm. it almost seems like something that would come out of a dream or a vision. Like mm -hmm. what, what inspires you for each piece? Ah, that's a great question. I, I didn't paint anything realistic until <clears throat> I was uh, 32 or 33. So I had been painting for, you know, almost 20 years. And I, I was on a trip to Japan and a friend of mine, we were standing at the Golden Pavilion and he said, this trip is going to change your art. And I said immediately, no way. And I realized afterwards that you should never answer a question like that, that quickly. <laughs> because I got back and to the States and, and just started painting uh, a shell and a flower and a bone and a skull. And, and it just took off from there. And so the flowers there, I just found them incredibly beautiful. And obviously other people thought they were beautiful too. And they were very easy to paint. And it was a painting process that I didn't really have to think much about as opposed to the, you know, what I call the, the more important work or the more meaningful work. And, and I'm in a new phase now that I'm, I'm looking at painting allegories, which is kind of a, a strange, a strange thing to jump into. It's kind of, kind of dated. Uh, the last big allegorical painters were in the, like at the turn of the 1800s, but it, there's something about it that really grabs me and, and inspires me to, to tell a story in a snapshot of, of a painting. You know, paintings are very interesting in the world of, of the arts because you only have one moment. You, you can study a painting for hours and weeks and years, but it's the only art form that you have one instant that you see the whole thing. Mm. Like a book, you know, it takes, a, you know, somebody to read a book anywhere from, you know, a few hours to a few days or weeks. Uh, a symphony takes you know, 35 minutes, uh, a pop song takes three minutes. So there's a beginning, a middle and an end. You know, a piece of poetry is the same, but a painting is just one moment. And that moment is sort of like a snapshot. And if you're doing, if you're wanting to tell a bigger story, then it, it takes a tremendous amount of time to, to compose the, the moment right? Because you have just that one moment that people see the entire painting. And I find that super fascinating to, to be able to then tell a story that, that not only has the, the first glance impact, but then as you look at the painting more, you notice elements of the painting that remind you of something or that they have, you know, a, a, historical reference or a cultural reference uh, that's both meaning to myself as the artist, but also has a large level of meaning that goes beyond just what the painting is about, which is, is fun from an artistic standpoint to, to use uh, symbology and, 
and references to other events, either historical or mythic or, uh, you know, even recent events, you know, so, so that's kind of the, the jumping off point right now that I'm exploring before for many years, I, I was, uh, looking at other, other artists. Uh, I had an experience in, in the mid nineties that, uh, sort of, uh, shocked my world. I do martial arts and I was living in Seattle and I, uh, was involved with, uh, Aikido Dojo. And then I met through the Aikido Dojo, a woman who ran, uh, a really amazing place called seven star women's Kung Fu. And they had as an open sparring. I think it was every other Sunday and it was two hours, uh, very, uh, relaxed atmosphere, great space. People would spar for, uh, two minutes and you agreed on on how long you would spar and how fast you would go or how much contact you would have. And one particular Sunday, I noticed this um, really remarkable man standing in the group uh, before we all started. And he was in a all black uh, silk Chinese, like Tai Chi outfit, mm-hmm. a very handsome guy, probably in his sixties maybe, but you couldn't really tell. And I thought, wow, he's going to be interesting to, to spar with. And it turned out that he didn't spar, but what was strange is that he followed me around the space watching me. And, and I thought, wow, that's odd. And so I moved around and he was always there. And at the end of the event, uh, you know, at the end of, uh, sparring, we would get into a circle and, you know, say any announcements and thank everybody. And, and I walked right over to him and we sat down and talked and he gave me some really remarkable compliments on, on my movement, which was really great to hear. And then it turned out that he he said, he's an artist. And I said, well, I'm an artist and I'd love for you to come by my studio. And he said, sure, I have a little bit of time later today. And he came by and he, he spent like five minutes at my studio and said, you know, thanks for inviting me over. And I said, well, you know, what did you, what do you think? And because I was really interested in and what his response was to my artwork. And he said, the man I saw doing martial arts with such, he, he, he said, you moved with such mo- nobility. That's the word he used. Mm-hmm. And, and grace and power is not the same man that's making this art. Mm. And I, yeah, I was literally blown away. And, and I said, wow, thank you for that. And, and then he left and, and I stopped painting for a month, which was unusual for me and tried to figure out what my next step was. And I thought and felt and, and, you know, really dug deep, you know, it was a big, uh, uh, moment of, uh, kind of transition. And I thought, well, since he talked about movement and, and how, I move, then I'm going to look at bodies and Renaissance artwork. And because I, I just felt like the most emotive visual image is our bodies and, and our hands and our faces and, and how we, how we stand or move or, or run or walk or whatever the motion is that bodies express everything. So I started after a month of contemplation, I started looking at Renaissance work and, and then 
slowly a body of work emerged that was just that, bodies, and, and reinterpreting them, so to speak. So using, especially Michelangelo, using his work to, in some ways it was sort of allegorical, using his work to say something, at least for myself, something uh, new and fresh about maybe my relationship with my father or, or the relationship that we have to war or evil. So I did that work for, for many years and uh, on, on large, they were mostly large uh, scale work on paper. There were two pieces that are uh, 80 inches high and 300 inches long. So that was, you know, that's six feet, eight inches by 25 feet on one piece of paper. Right. So they were, they were tremendous amounts of fun and, and very, uh, it led me into uh, making art that I felt I never looked him up again. And I, I don't know if he was actually, he, he it was sort of like an angel experience for me. Right. So I never really wanted to find out if he was actually real or, or what. <laughs> so, so that was, that's a roundabout way for me to say what inspires me is seeking that, that place within me that I know that I'm, I'm extending myself the most. So, so as in, uh, sparring, I know that feeling. I understand how that feels in my body and, and in my mind. And that's what I've, I've been striving for, uh, in my art in, in a way it's, I, I speak about it as the art of excellence, uh, mm -hmm. in a word. So how did that change your, I guess, exposure to other people? Like once you started to dip into the bodies and you started to try to bring this nobility and grace, like your angel was talking about, how did, did you notice a difference in the way people saw your art? Yeah, that, that's a great question. In a couple different ways. I, I had a few friends that were very, uh, focused on, because they knew me so well. And I went, you know, I basically really changed directions, but other artists, I, I was sort of, this was all, uh, in Seattle and I was in, involved with a few artists as friends and they were supportive. And, and then I had, I showed that work, that large work that all the, those large drawings in a show in 99 in Omaha, Nebraska, uh, which is the area that I grew up and, and it's also where my wife and I are living right now. We just moved back here about uh, a year and a half ago. So I, I experienced different levels of people connecting or not connecting to the work. I, I, in the 99 show, I invited quite a few museum folks from the area and I didn't get any response from them. And I actually had a conversation with a with two women and one of them had been to this show in, in Omaha. Uh, it ran for like three and a half weeks. And one woman had come back to the show and she brought her best friend who was actually the curator of contemporary art at the local uh, museum. And she had virtually nothing to say, which was very strange because this work is, it's huge. It's monumental work. And 
And I was kind of uh, confused by that and not sure exactly what, what, uh, what her, what was going on with her, the, her friend, you know, the first woman was very enthusiastic. And I spoke about the work that we were standing in front of and, and very responsive, but so it was, it's a very, it, it has been a very strange process that people in, in the art world haven't really responded well to that work, but the public loves it, which is I'm, I'm fine with. <laughs> so that's interesting that people sort of like see your art differently. Like some art speaks to people, some folks are a, a bit dismissive and it's just because it might not be in their personal taste. Exactly. When it comes to looking at art, I, I, I tend to think that there's a, a spectrum of artists where the artist wants to tell you exactly what to think and feel in a piece. Mm -hmm. Versus an artist that wants you to have your own interpretation of what the art is and means to them. Where do you fall along that spectrum? And what, what do you think about those, that dichotomy of, of artistry? Yeah, it, there's certainly the dichotomy for sure. I tend to fall into the latter. I like people to experience the art and, and in some ways personally decipher what they're, what they're seeing. And I'm, I'm always, you know, open to, to discuss, you know, what I have, where I came from, what, what my inspiration was and what my, the feelings and the, and the thoughts that were going into it. But I really love to hear what people are, are seeing and what they're experiencing and what, what kind of life uh, experiences, memories, uh, relationships, all these little bits and pieces that all of us bring to any piece of art, whether it's a poem or a dance or, or a painting. But so I like, I, I love to talk about my work. I think for sure, at least the, the initial experience is, should be uh, quiet and personal with, without uh, me <laughs> putting, putting any extra thoughts into their, into their minds. So. So I, I tend to like people being on their own and, 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 uh, working, being in a process with, with the painting. When, um, I, I look at your art and I see the storytelling aspect through it, which I, I sort of alluded to this in the very beginning of the podcast, because quite often on the show, we have animators, we have folks that write stories and they have a lot of material and, and wish to tell a story. And then. In a painting, you have often one image or mm. at least a series of images within a single image to tell an elaborate story. Which of your pieces would you say has the most elaborate or long story that someone could glean from it? Mm, that's a great question. Well, I'm, I'm working on a piece right now. This, the, this, the, it's the first of my jump into allegory. And I've been, it's been a year and a half that I've been working on it. It's, uh, about 60 inches by 84 inches. So big on some scale, but not really monumental. And then I, I worked on a piece uh, called air for nine years and it's super detailed on a couple different levels. So they're both different the air painting 
it has more, my wife and I were just talking about this. It has more of, of what I'm calling a story that is not really accessible. It's not obvious. It's from a dream that she had. Whereas the, the battle painting, I'm, I'm calling it the battle of good and evil. It is, it is allegory. So there is, I've chosen to put in a religious Christian symbology, which I've mm-hmm. never really used before, but it just seemed to be the right thing to do for, for this narrative. So, so I'm, I'm splitting that, I'm splitting story and narrative up. Story for me is a kind of a simple or more, maybe, maybe the better term is a more mythic or not as quickly accessible and a narrative for me is like, like you just said, that there's a lot going on in little bits, little portions of the painting that, and they all fit together, but, but it, it's, there's, there's stories within stories for me in the allegorical narrative. And, and I'm just really fascinated by it. it it's a lot of fun to, to make something much more complex than, than I have before. The large drawings were, were very, very big hands and, mm-hmm. and a figure. And the show in 99 uh, that I showed that work was almost all, yeah, it was, well, it was all Michelangelo uh, hands and figures, except for a drawing I did for my dad. And it was his hands and a Michelangelo drawing of Hercules. So they're mm. called Love's Labor. So it was, it was, a, it turned out to be a really, really good drawing. Outstanding. When I first met you, uh, looked at your TED talk, uh, obviously about creativity, you're now writing a manuscript about creativity. Uh, what compelled you to write the manuscript? Well, I, I started thinking years ago that I was going, I, I was interested in doing, even before the TEDx talk, I was interested in doing some, some public speaking. And I thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to write what I, what I'm interested in and that's creativity. And I started writing it out and I had a, a meeting with a friend and she said, uh, Patrick, that's not a presentation. That's, that's a book. <laughs> and I thought, <laughs> oh, Okay. And so <laughs> I got serious about, about actually, you know, that kind of, that kind of switched my thinking completely because I thought I need to be way more focused to construct a manuscript and a book, uh, than I do to do some public speaking, which I've done a bunch of, uh, when we lived back in Boulder and I, I really love it, but, and except for the TEDx talk, which was very scripted and mm-hmm. memorized, which is, that's a whole other story. But I, I usually do like, I'm like you and I are doing now. I'm just doing extemporaneous, you know, stuff that I'm thinking about and, and, and responding to your questions. So the book, the book is on, I was inspired to do, uh, some, uh, work helping people understand that creativity is an absolute necessity for learning. That 
is different than education. So education is mostly, you know, in our, in our world, in the, especially in the United States is essentially for a better term, book learning. So it's uh, very academic, you know, you've, I, I'm assuming, you know, I went through the public school systems, you know, you possibly did or private or, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, could, could have been any number of different flavors of education that, that are out there. But I believe that learning actually comes from our inner process. And I'm, my, I'm postulating that we each have, this is one of the core parts of the, the manuscript, that we each have a what I'm, what I call a learning language. So all of us, we basically create our method of learning internally as from even before we're born, you know, prenatally we're hearing, we're experiencing emotions and, and such. But then after we're born, we basically play and imagine and create the world into existence for us. We have plenty of help from our family and friends and, and then eventually teachers. But I believe our first language is, is literally created internally. And that's how we actually learn the best. Whatever that is for you, Chris, whatever it was for me, it is very unique. And that's how we relate to the world is how we, we play. Play and imagination and creativity are literally how humans learn early. There's a tremendous amount of early childhood education, uh, research and, and background, uh, that supports these, that theory that play is how, uh, children learn. And I'm, I was curious about why creativity ceases. I had an experience with, I years and years and years ago, I, I had lots of different jobs as many artists do. And one of them was in uh, preschool. But I was also at that time teaching kids karate and teaching kids art. So I was really tuning into how children learn. And I had an experience with a, with a kid in a preschool that was really into art. And then one day he just stopped. And that really, really stuck with me. And I, and I have thought about that experience a lot over the years. And I developed also some ideas and, and basically theories about how creativity gets lost. You know, like that's the title of my TEDx talk, Creativity Lost and Found. So the, I, I believe that because we have this very unique way in which we all learn, that's a little bit different. You know, there are certainly similarities on how children play and that's you know, also similarities of, of how children learn. But I believe that the school systems are essentially trying to force kids to learn a new language that is the language of education mm-hmm. instead of using their inner personal language of learning. Does, does that make sense? That makes absolute sense. And yep. It, it it makes me think about a lot of things that I've thought about the education system, because it does seem to be this system in which you're like, you're trying to fit a, a, a round peg into a square hole. And oh, totally. It just, 
it just doesn't work. And uh-uh. I, I love Montessori styles of schooling. I have uh, my youngest daughter is in a Montessori school right now. And I do really feel like that's one of the closer things uh, when it comes to the freedom of expression, the freedom to learn, you know, and I got to thank you for even bringing that up on this show. You know, we're talking about creativity, creatives uh, for the folks out there that want to keep up with you and, and definitely want to be up to date when the manuscript comes out. I know I'm waiting for it. Uh, what are the best ways for people to do that and, and also see your art? Oh, good question. I have uh, several uh, websites. The art websites are patrickwilliams.com and celebration flower paintings. That's all one word.com. And then my business site, uh, the consulting and mentoring on uh, creativity, that site is, uh, can, you can put into the, the whatever that little bar at the top is on the search <laughs> engine uh, with the WWs in it. Uh, you can put in Satori Innovation, S-A-T-O-R-I, innovation, all one word, dot com, or that the website itself, the U- URL is uh, Patrick Williams Stay Creative, which I bought a long time ago. And that was my business for a while until, you know, People said it was too wordy and I just haven't technologically figured out how to get <laughs> Satori Innovation to be what the WordPress website recognizes. So, but I have linked it. So Satori Innovation will find me, but also Patrick Williams Stay Creative will, will get right to the, to the website. Um, or, or you can... Uh, Patrick at PatrickWilliams.com is my email. People can, I'm happy to, to communicate that way. Love it, Patrick. Really appreciate the time. And we will see everyone back in the 13 realms. Super. 